0: So if you're here for the first time, I just want to apologize. We're talking about demons today. Please come back next week. Um, but I just want to open with this question. And this, I think we've had a lot of questions in this category, but this one might be the darkest. So have you ever had a demonic experience? And if not, when were you most afraid? So that second question... Um is isn't as important uh, to the conversation, but if you had a quick no, I just want you to have um something to fall back and share on. Okay, so I'm gonna give you guys two minutes. So do it quickly, and um and then I'll come back up and we'll we'll start the sermon. So go ahead and break off into groups of twos and threes. Make sure you got everyone around you. So look around before you start your conversation. All right, sorry to cut this time short. Uh, you might be at the climax of a story. I just want to apologize. So, one of I, I grew up in a charismatic church. Some of you guys grew up like Presbyterian, Reformed, or even atheist, agnostic. Where, where being, uh, we're talking about demons was really like minute and maybe totally absent from your theology or from just even your belief of what's real. But I grew up charismatic, and so there's some ups and downs to that. But I had a pretty strong awareness of demons and and how and spiritual warfare and how they influence our lives. Um, but my most explicit experience—I only have a, a, a handful. But my most explicit one was I was speaking at a retreat. It was three churches. None of them were charismatic. They were actually very conservative. And I was doing a talk on um, our traumas and healing. And these are all junior high and high schoolers, about maybe 150 of them. And as I'm speaking, theres I just hear this shriek. Um, high pitch, almost like Disney witch shrieking as she has a cauldron, you know, and she's brewing something. It was like that pitchy, but super loud and chills everywhere. Everyone turned around and And I totally stopped my sermon, and then, as I was walking to to this scream, I see this girl contorting on on the floor and It was the most horrific experience i 've ever i 've ever seen. Her body was in shapes that i didn 't think were possible, and so I sent everyone up to their room, and some of the kids are crying, you know I wanted to cry. Um, And then we just started praying for this young, for this young lady. This was probably 10 years ago. And I remember just being deathly afraid. And so I started by praying dash talking trash to the demons, (laughs) you know, kind of like as if you're going to start a fight, but you're scared. So you talk a lot of trash. So I did that, but kind of in spiritual, in the spirit, in a very spiritual way. But you don't got nothing on me, you know, Jesus. Yeah. Start rapping and stuff. When we look at this next passage, uh, Matthew chapter 9 verse 27, we have at the very tail end of this narrative. So Matthew is broken up to these really, um, beautiful segments. Chapter 1 through 4 is the coming of the Messiah. That the superhero, all the, that all the Jews have awaited for, that, that there were ancient prophecies about, thousands of years old, about this man who would come and redeem Israel, redeem the earth, that would build out God's kingdom. He's here, and so all these prophecies are being put out in chapter one through four about, and Jesus is fulfilling them. And then we go from narrative to discourse, this teaching on the Mount of what this kingdom would actually look like how hearts would be changed and that it wasn't just this external obeying of the law. It wasn't about behavior and religion, but deep and significant heart change. The the way that this evasion would occur was that Jesus was going to transform hearts. And these people with transformed hearts would come together and form this community that loved God, that loved each other, and that loved the world. But then in chapter 7 through 9, we go back into narrative. We go back into these stories strung together that isn't just about Jesus having authority in his teaching, but authority and dominion over evil. And so it wasn't his kingdom isolated and bunkered up against this kingdom of evil also isolated and walled off. But we have a hero who is going in to invade darkness. He's the tip of the spear. He's the first man on the beach, on D-Day. You know, he's invading evil in these really um, brilliant and powerful ways. He tells nature to come under his command. A storm to stop. He he uh, invades illness. And stops a woman from bleeding and raises this kid who is about to, this daughter who is about to die or who was dead from the grave, right? He's resurrecting the dead. He's forgiving sin. He's invading evil in our hearts. And then he's taking dominion in the spiritual realm as well as he's casting out demons. And I just kind of sat back and I thought, is there a sphere of evil that he in these narratives, did not claim authority in death, sickness, sin, and the spiritual realm. In each, in each episode, Jesus is saying, This is what my kingdom will look like, and this is how I'm going to invade darkness. And so we have this hope when we read these narratives of, of God, of the fullness of God's kingdom where there's no more death where sin is completely defeated in our own hearts, where Satan and his demons have no domain, where sickness is obsolete, and Dr. Ken has no job because there's no cancer. And we envision not only these external evils being removed, but our internal evils being removed, and this new kingdom of community and fellowship that, again, he speaks about in uh, verses, or chapters 5 through through 7. But as we have this hope for the future, we live in this not-yet kingdom, right? The kingdom of God is here. When Jesus lands, it's here, and he's invading darkness, and he's setting up his kingdom, and we see tangible aspects to that, and yet it's not in its fullness. It's not what we envision and hope it to be. It's not yet, because we reside in two kingdoms on earth. We reside in the kingdom of God, but we also reside in a kingdom of evil, and they're clashing. And we see it tangibly when we think about these kids being murdered at their school in Texas, and the other 22 murders that have happened in schools over this last year. And then we see our church and other churches coming around and taking care of 76 foster kids for a week. And then furthering mentoring relationships. And then our hearts grow bigger. And even when we're getting married, we sit down and we're saying, maybe we can adopt somebody. Or maybe we could give someone a home when they have none. Or we go to Morocco. Or we sit in front of a student after class, and we have the opportunity to pray for her. These two kingdoms warring together, awaiting for Jesus to win. Right? That's the best part of Revelations, is that in the war, we know the victor. Because sometimes we doubt that. Sometimes we see such grotesque evil, and we're not sure who comes out on top. If I was li- living in Nazi Germany, I wouldn't know if they just take over the earth or not. But Jesus says, hey, at the end, I win. But we're living in the here and not yet kingdom. So today, as we look at this passage, In Matthew chapter 9, 27 to 34, I'm going to read this to you. It says, While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed could not talk, was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, It is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. And actually, chapter 12, Jesus uh, casts out demons again. The Pharisees make the same accusation, and he does a long rebuttal at the end of chapter 12. So almost every Sunday, we do exegetical preaching, meaning we look at the passage and we talk through it. But today, I'm varying off, which uh, I'm always conflicted about, but I want to build a theology of of demons because much of our church is... Um, comes from a more conservative background, which I have a you know I like that as well but we we really don 't have a lot of categories for how to interact with demons and how to fight them for spiritual warfare and so we have this one category of people being completely possessed by demons, and then the story I shared oh sorry. Uh, of course, of course something happens. Okay. Um, and then we have and then we have nothing else, right? So we have one category and, and I had a lot of conversations with you this week. Most of you are like, I have no idea how us and demons interact, or if if there are demons in my life interacting with me um, or influencing me. And and the only category we have is this kind of really out there, eyes rolled out, speaking in a different voice. Um, thing so it's that or nothing. But I hope that today, as we talk about spiritual warfare and and the interaction between our lives and and demons, that in some ways it would feel normative and not scary, and yet, ex- but but we can um, reflect on our own lives and see aspects in which. We have an enemy that maybe we've never fought before, but we should turn and fight. Um, maybe a good example is sometimes when a, when Satan and his demons can operate in our lives covertly, You know, they're lying to us, they're attacking us, and instead of punching them in the face, we turn around and we punch our mom, or we punch our sister, or we punch our brother in Christ, uh, or we punch ourselves, because we don't have this category of an enemy that we're supposed to respond to In biblical ways. So here's a spectrum of of demonic or spiritual warfare in our lives. There's full-on possession. So that's kind of the story I described, where a demon has so much influence in a person's life, they could speak uh, on their behalf. Or they can take certain aspects uh, over and uh, maybe give them supernatural strength. Josh, and, Josh Garcia and I was having a conversation where part of his residency in um, pharmacy was visiting psych wards. And even these people who didn't believe in God, but was exposed to a lot of um, schizophrenia, multi-personality disorder would say, some of this is schizophrenia, but some of this is like full-on spiritual. Because, And I was like, what are some distinguishing factors? And he's like, some of them will have like superhuman strength which isn't like a category for why you know a psychological break would lead to that. So even these people are are acknowledging that there's something beyond these psychological categories that we've put them in. And then there's just everyday influence. And I want to suggest to you that every day we encounter demonic influence there's demons in our lives that are trying to derail us from following jesus they're trying to have us believe things that are not true that are tempting us to sin and so we don't want to we don't want to live life thinking that there's demons everywhere right thinking that like I got indigestion. That's like the demon of acid, you know, or, you know, someone took my parking spot and that's demonic or every week my clicker doesn't work. So there's a demon in the clicker. Sometimes I think that's true. Um, but then we don't want to, want to live life totally oblivious to demons as well. Because in uh, Ephesians chapter six, verse 12, it says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And Paul is speaking about all of us. How often when we struggle in our lives do we attribute it simply to what we can see, observe, simply to a relationship or something that's happened in our life? right? Where We can tend toward that, some of us 100%, 100% of what's going on in our lives um, is, is non-spiritual. Or if we don't have a category for the enemy, all everything spiritual is blamed on what we can see, observe, or God. Right? We don't when when it is spiritual, we say it's God's fault because we don't have an enemy to attribute it to. And so in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, we think about our struggles in our life. And we ask, is there aspects of our struggle that are spiritual, that are uh, demonic? When I think about psychological disorder, but maybe many categories of our life, I think that everything, there's a, a, a psychological component, there's a biological component, and there's a spiritual component. It's like this pie chart, right? And it's not always divided into thirds. Sometimes one aspect is a lot greater than another, and it takes deep discernment in order to understand um, what is more prevalent. But I would suggest if when I was wrestling with depression, if you're wrestling with anxiety, that we need to have in our perspective all three. We need to think about how to address, for me, depression um, psychologically. You know, going to a therapist, working out, some trauma and some baggage in my life, how to address it biologically. If I came to a point where I needed medication, I would take it. I took meds for ADD, right? It was, it was amazing. And then um, aspects in which it's spiritual. Um, and, and that's where I and our church should be addressing. So when someone comes and says, hey, I was diagnosed with this or I am struggling with this, I don't think, oh, it's 100% spiritual. But I do think it's always partly spiritual, and it could be a larger part, or it could be a very small part. But but it's often, it's always all three. Um, When we think about influence versus possession, we we look at scripture and we see some really um, powerful ways that Satan can take over someone's life. Uh, We think about the men at the grave who would cut themselves, who would break chains, who who are isolating. I think about how suicide um, or suicidal thoughts is always very... um, There's always a dark influence there, right? Um, Or when we think about school shootings, child abuse, um, rape, murder, there's none of those things that happen without strong influence from the evil one. Capitalizing on our desires and um and and the things that we maybe naturally think are evil cuz we have we're born as sinners right and even when we become christian there's these patterns of sin that reside in us but satan comes in and he amplifies those things or we face a situation and he turns it so that we hate god or we hate the people around us you know the way satan fights he's He's like the dirtiest fighter in the world, you know. Like he he doesn't square up, put on gloves, and and uh, fight with rules on. He he waits for you to turn your back. He goes for the eyeballs, you know. He waits for you to fall asleep. That's the kind of fighter he is. And so, anyways, there's some really large ways in which Satan can have power over our lives, but I haven't seen that kind of possession too often. And when it happens, it's often it's because we've given permission for Satan to come into our lives to that degree. Um, If it's a full-on demonic possession, it's because it's been there's this long path in which more and more we welcome this other person into our lives. So most of us don't play with that. Some people do. um, And that's how possession happens. But influence is kind of every day. Every day, Satan, again, lies to us, accuses us, tries to derail us from God's path. And as the influence continues to grow, these thoughts of bitterness or hate or anger starts to consume us or greed. And it's all we think about, right? And, and, then, and then our actions are always um, tethered to our thoughts, and so it doesn't become just a lie we believe. It starts to dominate our, our relationships, our activities, our behaviors. And so that influence spectrum, when you think of it growing, can become extremely detrimental as well. Anyone questions or everyone's following me? This is kind of like Demonology 101. So that's what we're doing today. Okay, we're actually at the, we're closing it off. I hope to land in very practical ways. Um, I want to say also that when you look at Scripture, I think it's intentionally proportioned. And so Jesus takes up a lot of the Bible, right? There's like four Gospels. Most of the New Testament is fleshing out the Gospel and what the Gospel means in our lives. Jesus at the end of John says all of the Old Testament is about me. So you see when you look at this temple, sacrificial system, David, we think about all of them as uh, foreshadows of Christ. And then when you think about demons and you look at the verses, I've pretty much read like in, I can read all the verses about demons in about an hour. There's not that much. And so when it comes to proportions, I think that we give enough attention to spiritual warfare, but to the proportion of Scripture, which is about less than five percent. Does that make sense? So being obsessed over it, being afraid of it, uh, having that as your focal point in your spiritual journey is very unhealthy. And yet we need to be aware. And so like you've heard me preach, if you've been around a hundred sermons, this is like my first sermon on demonism, and uh, I think that's about correct proportions with scripture. Um, another analogy I'll give is that I used to love mountain biking, and I was, I was pretty good at it. I got extremely proficient, and um, there are times where there's this huge boulder on one side and a cliff on the other. And if you're a noob, if you're new to mountain biking, you're focused on either the boulder or the cliff right? And that's all you see. And the problem with that is where your eyes are, that's where your bike is going to go as well. So an experienced biker, they'll they'll take note of the boulder, they'll take note of the cliff, but I'm focused on the four inches to thread both the boulder and the cliff. That's where 95% of my attention goes. And in the same way, we want to acknowledge, again, uh, spiritual warfare, we want to say that it's real, that it's a part of our lives, and at the same time, that's not the focal point, right? If we don't acknowledge the cliff, we might fly off of it, so that's not good. But if we stared it down, that we might we might fly off of it as well. So, how do we keep our eyes on Jesus, on the gospel, on living missionally, on love, and yet at the same time acknowledge that the, there are so, there's a real enemy? That wants to attack us. That's what I hope uh, we can go today. So, um, again, lots of conversations. Dave shared an amazing sermon last week. I was so blessed by it, and he gave me some of some of this as well. A great way to understand how Satan schemes and takes place in our life is understanding his names. There's about 25-ish names of Satan in the Bible. Here are the ones that I think are most prevalent, especially when it comes to this uh, influence side, this everyday side. And and I do hope that we would think about how in everyday life we can fight this enemy, okay? So if you feel like Satan's dominating your life, um, that you're hearing voices that are away from the Lord, I would love to talk to you about that. Um, and pray with you, but every day. But as a Christian, I kind of want to talk about kind of the everyday side of spiritual warfare. The first is that he's our accuser, and it says, um, "For the accuser of our brethren has accused them before our God day and night." And in Revelation chapter twelve, he's been cast down. But right now, Satan is accusing us before the Father, and that's one of his main functions. And I wonder if we have heard Satan's accusations in our life and have identified it as coming from him. Now, he could use, you know, our community, our parents, or other people as conduits of his accusations, but really he's the originator of it. And so if we think hard enough, all of us have heard his accusations, and I wonder if you can identify some of those lines in your life, how you're not valuable or you're unloved, Um, he'll accuse us of not really being a child of God. He'll accuse us of our worst sins and try to have that define the rest of our value. So what are the reoccurring accusations that Satan brings up in your life about your value, about your identity. You know, it took so many years. I started ministry too young and I did too much. At 17, 18, uh, I ran a junior high and high school ministry. Some weeks I would lead worship and preach. And poor Ben was subjected subjected to that, right, in his early years. That's why he is the way he is. I'm just kidding. But, um, uh, awesome, of course. But, uh, you know, I, I honestly have some really deep regrets in the way I've treated people and shepherd people in those early years of ministry. And for years, I would just be driving, I would be eating something, and all of a sudden, this memory comes back and and, and how I was just like really rude to a volunteer or how I didn't represent Jesus at all to a, a student. And I would just be haunted by it. It was like, it just kind of came up out of nowhere. Literally, I'm driving, listening to music, and boom, I would get this memory. And I would just, it would just... Take away my joy of ministry. And I would, I would say to myself, I'm not a good pastor. I shouldn't be doing this. Out of nowhere. Are, those, are there lines of accusations in your life that Satan will just blindside you in? In John chapter 8, verse 44, it says that he's the father of lies. And, and in, another pa- in another version, it says that lying, speaking of lies is his native tongue. One of the most powerful tools Satan has is to lie to us. And, and we don't think of lies as very powerful, but they are. Because a good lie means that you believe it to be true. And, a, and, and our truth, what we believe to be true, when it's entangled with a lie, guides our life into a lie. And so what are the lies that Satan has told us that we've believed? And how do we even know it's a lie if we've believed it? We desperately need to know God's word. We desperately need to identify areas of our belief and our behavior that's contrary to God's word, and to say, "I'm doing this sin because I actually believe a lie." And how do I, how does that match up to the truth of God's words? We need um, to hear scripture from others because they'll bring truth into places we are blind. We need to live in community where people will speak truth to us. And lastly, he's come to steal, kill, and destroy. That's his mission statement. You know, Renew has a mission statement that as a community, we would be a mission team to our city. This is Satan's mission statement. He's come to kill, steal, and destroy. He wants to take your life. He wants you to take other people's lives. He wants to steal purpose and peace from you. What has Satan come to steal, kill, and destroy in your life? Is it your hope for the future? Is it believing that you can make an impact in God's kingdom? Is it to cut down your family? If we could just take one minute and think through this and say, and not just have it be conceptual, but become extremely personal. If we could take one minute just to write down some keywords, what are some accusations that he said to me? What are some lies that maybe I've started believing? What are the ways that he's attacking and cutting down and trying to steal from me? That would be, like, awesome. <laughs> can we, I need to I need give us, like, 30 seconds, just take out our phones and see if we could just pinpoint some things in our life in terms of accuser, lies, and thief, okay? 30 seconds, can you just make it real? All right. I would love for us to think about this more. This last um, slide is <laughs> our poop icons. Um, the last name of Satan that I'm going to cover today is Beelzebub, the father, uh, the Lord of the flies. And uh, again, talking to people who have thought about this, um, there's a book written about how Satan builds out strongholds in our soul or in our heart through the poop. In our lives, okay, and um, and so when we carry bitterness, when there's something that we're not willing to ask for forgiveness of, when there's a place in our life that we're not surrendering to Jesus, we're holding on to it. When there's addiction in our lives, those are places that that we have uh, opened up for the enemy to have some strongholds in, right? And so when you think about uh, when I think about my sin. It's like this area of my, my soul or my heart that Satan just can attack anytime, And it's a, it's a weak point. And so a, a huge way in which we are um, allowing Satan to leave our lives or, or less, have lesser influence is by healing, finding the healing of Jesus, the forgiveness of Jesus, surrendering to him, and asking the spirit of God to fill us. And in Matthew chapter 12, again, when he's driving out demons, he gives this really amazing analogy where he says that when, someone's, when a demon's casted out of a person, um, their heart or their soul is vacant and they clean it up. But then this demon has no home. And then so he brings back seven more demons, more evil than itself to occupy this man's heart. And the reason why it's able to come back is because his heart is unoccupied. And so how do we invite the Spirit to come and occupy places in which we've, we've not let it in? Um, a really good passage from James that says, In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. Right? When we allow anger to turn into bitterness, we're, giving a, we're letting Satan uh, put down a stake in our hearts. Does that make sense? So when we um, wrestle with trauma, when trauma happens to us and we continue to relive it and we're not allowing the Lord to heal it, when we're not letting go of a person who's hurt us, when we're caught up in a a cycle of addiction, those are all spaces in our life that we are allowing Satan to take hold of. So again, what 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 does that look like for you? um here's some ways in which we take hold of our lives again you know at the end of the day satan doesn't have control of our lives but in some ways god doesn't choose to control our lives either because he wants us to freely choose him we have the greatest stewardship of our mind of our body of our lives and we can we have to decide to surrender it to jesus so one of the most, here are some really practical ways when, I, uh, I, when I'm able to identify spiritual influence, demonic influence in my life, right? When it's not indigestion, when it's not just my flesh and my character. One of my favorite quotes is, you can't sanctify a demon and you can't cast out character. <laughs> Does that make sense? Like if it's a demonic influence, you can't sanctify that. You can't, um, but you can't cast out character either. So sometimes it's just you. But anyways... When I, do, when I do find um, aspects of, of accusation or lies in my life or a thought that comes in, I'm like, I don't think that's me. I think that's actually another voice. The first thing I'll do is I'll pray in Jesus' name and in his authority, right? In the name of Jesus, I cast out this thought. In the name of Jesus, I pray your authority over my sleep or over um, my anger. And I, I resubmit that aspect of my life under the authority of, of Jesus, I, I, I give it to him. And the name of Jesus is extremely powerful. It says that every creature, right, under the earth, in the heavens, on the earth, is, bows to the name of Jesus. It's an extremely powerful name because he's real, he's God, and it's, and it's powerful because we have a relationship with him. Um, some, someone from the street could be yelling for me and, and desperate for me, and, and I might not respond, because I have no relationship to him. But when Liam cries for me, when he's like, Appa, Dada, Boba, which are my three names, <laughs> sometimes ABO, like avocado, so he gets me mixed up with, well, he loves Boba and avocado, so it makes sense. But anyways, when my son cries out to me, I beeline to him. Right, If I felt like he needed me right now, like really needed me, I would ditch my sermon. I would ditch all of you. It would be the most awkward thing. I would just walk off from the stage and I would go to my son because I have this deep love and care for him. When we're a child of God, when we have a personal relationship with God, we have nothing to fear because we're his kid. We could cry out and invoke the name of Jesus in love and relationship at any point, and he comes and he scatters evil. They have no place. They tremble before him. You know, I was looking at a graphic for a sermon and there was this cool arm wrestling picture between Jesus and Satan, right? And it was like, oh, I'd kind of like to see like a Dragon Ball Z episode of Jesus and Satan. But it didn't happen that way. You know, Satan rebelled. God's like, get out of here. And he left, like, that's it. And now, even now when Satan wants to invoke damage to a person's life, he has to ask God for permission. He's totally under God's authority, and when we ask Jesus to take authority over a situation when we're afraid, um, Satan, if, if he's not covert, he wants us to be, live in fear, right? In the Western world, oftentimes he's covert. But in the Eastern world, in, in third world countries, he's not covert. Everyone recognizes that there's evil, but he wants that evil to invoke fear and dominate them that way. So Satan only really operates in those two ways, right? He either fronts and tries to get us to be backed down out of fear, or he wants to work subversively. But how are we asking in Jesus' name him to flee from our lives? When I saw this, this girl who was tormented by a demon, who was, who was um, contorting, every time we said the name of Jesus, it was, it was cool because it was so visual, right? When we say Jesus' name, sometimes we don't think anything happens. But because it was such, it was such an in-your-face moment, um, every time we said the name of Jesus, it was like the demon was crying in pain. I don't, it was so real for me in that moment. But then it reminded me that, that when I invoke Jesus' name out of relationship and love, that's what's happening in the spiritual realm. Demons are crying in fear. Demons are fleeing. The, second, the third thing I would love for you to do is to look at the lies in your life that you're struggling with, that you've believed. Maybe that Jesus doesn't care about you and that he's far away. There's verses about how, he, how there's nowhere you can go to hide from his presence. Sit down and memorize scripture that, that can be a sword, where you directly cut down the lies of the enemy, right? If you if you feel unforgiven for a certain sin, there's verses that says God is faithful to forgive you, that He blots out your sin, that He separates your sin, your transgressions as far as the east is from the west. So you hear that accusation, and then you memorize the scripture, and you do what Jesus does, right? Satan confronts him. We wanted an epic battle. But instead, Jesus draws his sword. He memorizes Deuteronomy, and again and again, he just cuts down Satan's lies. Can we do that in our lives? Is the Bible, is Scripture, this this sharp, double-edged sword that we know exactly how to use in the face of lies and accusations and doubts, or is it rusted, or is it head knowledge that doesn't really apply? I love inductive Bible study. I'm glad we've fallen into in love with scripture but that's kind of my prayer as i observe our groups it's like has this turned from an academic understanding of god's word where we have questions and we're excited to engage into a sword that's dividing our soul and spirit that's convicting our hearts that's allowing satan to flee from us the opposite of being possessed by by a demon is being filled by the spirit but it's opposite in many ways when we when a Satan takes over our body, he wants control, he wants to micromanage us, he wants to cause us to do evil. but when 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 we allow the spirit to fill us, he empowers us to do to live freely, right It's a person. Restricted to the bed, dying of sickness versus someone who's fully healthy, being able to rock climb and play volleyball and pick up their kids and put them on their back. That's the difference from a soul that is sick, that is dominated by a specific sin and addicted to it and doing more and more evil and using people and things to satisfy that versus someone who's filled with the Lord and able to do anything, um, serve anyone. Because of that, how are we walking with the Spirit? And lastly, to live in community and speak truth and love. You know, I think we can. Um, I, it grieves me. It grieves me in our, in our community. It makes me sad when people just call something out and they don't love that person. When someone calls something out and it's just cold and and detached, and it's not. I'm saying this with grace and love and deep humility, and I'm willing to walk with you into freedom. You know, my hope as a pastor, I've been able to do this well, is that when I see someone caught up in sin and and they have to be removed from ministry for a time, I've done this probably a dozen times, I I ask them to step down, but I tell them, as you step away, I am willing to step in. I'm willing to give more of my time and my energy to you because that's what Jesus does. He's a good shepherd. He doesn't isolate the sheep. He puts them on his back. All of you are to be good shepherds. All of you, when you see a brother or sister who is hurting or wounded, and we all are, how are we putting them on our back and carrying them to the Lord? Alongside of speaking truth. Man, we are so out of time, but I want us to pray for each other. Nonetheless, nonetheless, in the same groups that we shared our demon story with, what are some lies, accusations, and parts of your heart that Satan is trying to attack? Have you just identified one or two things? I hope that at the end of the service, it wasn't this weird like demon message, and no one knows how to apply it, and everyone's scared, but it would be, Oh, I've actually seen subtle ways in which I've been lied to, I've been accused. And I have some practical tools to fight against that every day. So I would love for us just to spend some time to pray for each other. One specific thing and to ask Jesus to have authority over it. And to maybe give a verse for us to think about in our prayer. Can we do that? And now, and then if after that, I would love for you to take communion together. It's such a powerful, tangible way in which we remember that Jesus has victory. You know, he forgave all of our sins. He died on the cross for us. That's ultimately how he invades evil, by forgiving us and transforming our hearts. And so if you're a believer, I would love for you to to partake in his blood and um, in his body, remembering that he set us free and that he has authority. And that we could live for him. God, we're grateful for our time to pray for each other. And this is my favorite moment in service, praying for each other in communion. Because I I just think that maybe today, maybe we've identified one or two things in which Satan's attacking us. And as we're asking for prayer, as we're calling on you, as we're reminded of truth in, in our little community, that you would set us free maybe for the first time, God will pull out a sword and cut down the enemy in our lives. I just think about this girl that I got to pray for. And I, I think about those moments where we asked Jesus to, to deliver her from the grip of the enemy, where she recited verses and herself asked your authority into her life. And I just remember this moment of freedom where, where the, the demon left her and, and everything about her felt relaxed and freed and filled with peace and she would talk about it like that. And I, I hope for that in differing degrees for all of us that you would give us freedom. In Jesus' name, would you just pray for one another?